Welcome to This Week in California Education, produced by EdSource Radio. I'm Louis Friedberg, Executive Director of EdSource. And I'm John Fensterwald, Editor-at-Large of EdSource. Let's start with L.A., where there was some shocking news this week. The L.A. School Board President, Ref Rodriguez, was charged with giving over $24,000 to his own campaign and saying that those donations came from other contributors. What's all that about, Lewis? Now, this actually happened two years ago when Rodriguez first ran for the school board. This whole thing has sent shockwaves through the whole district and certainly on the board. Ref Rodriguez was just elected to be president of the school board. He comes from a charter background, and this is the board with the new majority that, that's supported by charter school advocates. So what happened was, was that Ref Rodriguez is alleged to have funneled money through a relative into his own campaign and then had a bunch of friends, relatives, and actually several employees of the charter school that he worked for give the money in their name, and then they were apparently reimbursed. What is really bizarre about this is that he didn't have to do it because candidates are allowed to put as much of their own money into their campaigns. This didn't have to happen, so it's really unclear why this happened. Yeah, it's really what they call money laundering. And you're right. It's strange because that campaign in independent expenditures was about $2 million. We're talking about $24,000. So we're talking about 1%, basically, of the money that that campaign raised. Well, it might have been when he first entered the race, he wasn't aware that there would be millions of dollars of independent expenditures from, from mostly charter school advocates. So what happens now, Lewis, to Ref Rodriguez? Well, he will be arraigned uh, sometime next month. And I think there's questions about whether he can continue as president of the board, certainly with this cloud hanging over him. And as you said, there's a slim majority of sort of pro-charter backers on that board, four to three. So every vote counts. It's true, although it has not been as divided in these early weeks as people had anticipated. But talking about LAUSD, John, there were some other big news, a settlement of a lawsuit. Right. That's a lawsuit that public advocates and ACLU brought against the district. And it was a real test of the local control funding formula, which, as we know, is supposed to direct extra money to low-income children and English learners and foster children. The suit said that the district was misdirecting about $450 million that should have gone to those students, but were sort of counted as going to special education students. So, So that was the whole case. And it seemed at the time it was a kind of a technical issue. The district said they were using money for special ed and these were targeted these special needs kids, but the advocates right. said that was misuse so, of those funds. So basically, in other words, many of the students who are low-income and foster youth and English learners are also special education students. The same percentages, roughly, is in the district. So they were counting the money that the federal government said you already had to pay for special education. They said, well, that counts towards your local control funding formula share. And public advocates said, well, wait a minute. This is money that you're supposed to do in addition to that in increasing programs and services for these students. So LA Unify, which is in budget trouble, said, no, we're doing it fine. And so they sued. And and so this was settled. And what was the settlement? The settlement is that about 50 schools with high-need students will get $150 million over the next three years. And the district acknowledges that that money, $450 million, should go to these larger 
group of students. And over time, we'll figure out how to do that. So it's a big win in terms of the principle of local control funding formula. And for the students who will get the money, it's a big deal for them too. So in effect, $150 million is going to be more targeted then at high-need students. That's correct. Particularly, all of it will go to 50 schools that have been identified with the highest ratio of poverty and the neediest schools. Okay, well, a big win for public advocates and, and their allies. And for those students. Well, let's move north from L.A. to Sacramento. You attended the state board meeting this week. And right. finally, the state board actually had to approve the state plan that they've been working on to satisfy the requirements of the Every Student Succeeds Act. What happened at the meeting? Yes. Well, this was an 18-month process, and it ended on Wednesday, and they did approve a state's plan for that new federal law. They had only until September 18th to do it, so, you know, it got down to the deadline. So, to no surprise, they adopted the state plan, and that describes how they will use about $3 billion, $2.6 billion in federal funding for low-income students and for teacher training, and also, more importantly, how they will use that money for equitable purposes to improve the schools of the lowest-performing 300 schools and also to narrow the achievement gaps. That's the main thing that the plan is supposed to do. The state board came under a lot of pressure from various organizations and advocacy groups to be more prescriptive put in more measurements and accountability provisions. Did the state board respond to those? The vote was eight to two, and it reflected the division that you just mentioned. The state board's view is that we are on track in California through the local control funding formula, which talks about multiple measures and directing resources to students, and also this so-called continuous improvement of working with districts at a local level. That's the direction that California takes. It's very different from the old no child left behind in which you were dictated prescriptions on how to fix your schools. There were civil rights advocates who were saying, no, you know, this is a civil rights document, and you really need to tell us what you're going to do, when you're going to do it, set the guidelines and the goals and the timeline. And they said it's really important to do this to narrow the achievement gaps. It's really a question of method because there's no question that the state board is committed very clearly to equity. It's a question of the process in which you're going to do it and whether you have faith in the state board doing this over the next 10 years. So effectively, they approved the plan without making any major changes. That's correct. It's been clear for the past three months the direction that the state board is heading, and particularly one member, Feliza Ortiz-Licon, who has been advocating on behalf of English learners very strongly. She has been pushing for you know, a, a really strong commitment in civil rights and much more prescriptive way in the plan to commit the state to do it. In the end, she said, no, I just can't vote yes. So the next step is it actually goes to Betsy DeVos's Department of Education. Any chance that this will be rejected? They'll send it back? They'll ask California to make any changes? I think it's unpredictable, but the Every Student Succeeds Act gives states more latitude than they had before. And the state board president, Michael Kurz, continues to say, we have satisfied what that law asks us to do. We did no more than that because we didn't want to get locked in now to the changes we plan to make as we evolve. He's confident we've satisfied that law. And I have noticed that the states who submitted their plans early on 
The department did send them back for some changes, but I've noticed recently after pushback from the Congress and Republicans you know, on Capitol Hill, most of these plans are being approved. You're right. Absolutely. There was a lot of pushback and they've all, I believe, been approved. Speaking of the U.S. Department of Education, there was a development this week in a longstanding dispute between the department and the state over science testing. Bring us up to date. Yeah, well, this dispute actually dates to the Obama administration. California has new standards, the next generation science standards, which the state adopted in 2013. So the state is developing new tests or assessments based on those new standards. And the state wants to implement them gradually, a pilot test, a field test. But the state doesn't want to administer these old tests based on the old standards, which the state adopted in 1998. Well, the federal government was telling the state, no, you have to administer those old tests because that's actually the only way to get test scores, which they could publish and get to parents. So this has been an issue that's been hanging out there. And in fact, the federal government was threatening California with fines. So Obama leaves office, new president, and the state submits a new request for a waiver from these provisions based under the old No Child Left Behind law. And lo and behold, the Trump administration, in the form of an acting assistant secretary of education, Jason Botel, says, yes, we'll give you a waiver, but just for last year. So we won't fine you. We won't do anything because you didn't administer the old tests. But Jason Botel says this waiver doesn't apply to this year. So California wants another year to develop the test, right? And the Fed's saying, no, we want all this stuff done next year. So, so what happens now? Well, the state, in the form of officials in the California Department of Education, basically have made it clear they are not going to be administering the old test. And they have a lot of support from that, from science teachers. I think most educators, it just doesn't make any sense to administer old science tests based on old standards. But the feds are saying they don't care whether you administer the old test. They just want you to do a test in its full, completed form. And the state's saying, no, we're going to need another year to develop it. So too bad, right? That's what they're saying. But I think, John, and you talked with some people in the Department of Education, Kerrick, Ashley, and others, and they're saying they're going to work with the department. And they're not going to ask for another waiver but they're going to put forward a plan and they're going to figure out some way to get some reports back to parents. So is it settled? Actually, it's not really settled. I think the state and other educators we talked to are trying to put a positive gloss on this. They, they don't really want to get people worried that the state might have to administer these old tests and the teachers won't know which standards they are teaching to, etc. But it's in black and white. This, the federal government is saying this waiver only applies to last year. So people we've talked to say that the state isn't going to apply for a formal waiver. They're going to put forward a plan. They're going to figure out some way to get some reports to parents. And they are hopeful that based on getting the waiver for last year, they will somehow make it through the next year. Okay, so enough about noise and rancor in Sacramento and Los Angeles. We're going to turn to Carolyn Jones, talk about a completely different development on the ground in schools, and that's quiet. Carolyn, tell us about a story you wrote this week. Well, some schools in California, a growing number of schools, mostly high schools and a lot of private schools, are shutting off their bell systems. What a pleasure, I imagine. Yes, that's what teachers say, students say it, administrators say it. Schools say they're doing it for two reasons. One is because the bells are driving people crazy. 
Um, at a typical high school with seven or eight periods a day, we're talking 16 bells. Plus, the bells tend to ring on the weekends, too, driving neighbors crazy. And the other reason why they are turning the bells off is to teach students about time management, because they say that time management is the number one most important job skill. And why shouldn't kids start learning that in high school? Ah, but we're talking about bells, but often it's an annoying buzzer, isn't it? Yeah, sometimes buzzers, sometimes bells. Kind of the older school buildings tend to have bells, and the newer ones have buzzers. So are students showing up late to class, or how's it going? Well, schools that have enacted this say that tardiness has actually decreased because students are taking a little bit more responsibility for their own time management, and they just look at a watch, look at a clock, look at their cell phones, and tend to get to class on time. Well, I imagine you still have perhaps late slips or something in case they don't. Yeah, tardiness still exists. I think at all schools everywhere, there's going to be kids late for class. I know certainly I was one of those kids. <laughs> yeah, as a neighbor of a school with an annoying buzzer, I I, I will recommend it down the street. Are, are the teachers in schools also saying it's work? Should others do this? Oh, yeah. They say it's greatly improved campus morale. The campus is just a much more peaceful and quiet place, and they say they would recommend it for schools everywhere. Mainly high schools, though, at this point? Yeah, the, the littler kids still need a bit of a reminder to get to class on time. Well, good. Listen, thanks. That's uh, really interesting news. Sure thing. Finally, there's been a crush of legislation this week in Sacramento. It's the final week of the session. We've been following a number of bills, but one in particular deals with community college. I wonder if you could bring us up to date on that, too. Well, this has got a lot of attention. There's a bill that's actually passed both chambers in the legislature and is on Governor Brown's desk. And it basically is to give free community college tuition to all California students, regardless of income, kind of a populist measure. You know, community college fees are pretty low to start with. Yes, it's about $46 per unit. And if a student takes a full load, it costs about $1,200 to $1,400 per year. It's probably the best bargain of any public university system in the country. And actually, nearly half of students already get those fees waived. Because if you're low income, you can qualify for this Board of Governors waiver. So this really applies to middle income and higher income students. So it's just an encouragement that here, here's an opportunity for you. That's the thinking, but it would mean that there'd be 19,000 more students, approximately full-time students, who would get free tuition. And it would cost the community colleges. They estimate $30 million or more per year that the community colleges are now getting in these fees. So it passed overwhelmingly, nonetheless. Give us a prediction of whether the governor is going to sign this. The Department of Finance, which is basically a department in the governor's administration, is not happy with this. And I suspect that the governor will veto this bill, despite its appeal. Because the question is, is this really going to help students? And really what they should be doing is helping these students pay for all the other costs of college, which is living expenses and so on, which is a lot more than the tuition. Well, the governor's going to get a number of bills on his desk at the end of uh, this week. So that's a topic for next week. Okay, look forward to it. That just about wraps it up. For this week in California education, I'm Lewis Friedberg. I'm John Fensterwald. And we're here with Sarah Tan, our producer. Thanks for listening. <laughs>